And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The race is on and just like that, launch season is over and we're into pre-season testing. The first of two three-day tests kicks off in Barcelona on Wednesday as teams attempt to cram their preparations into less time than ever. But will the testing picture be accurate, or deal us a curveball as it did last year? I'm your host, Ed Straw, and joining me for this preview podcast in the town of Granoyers, just a few miles from the circuit, are Gary Anderson and Scott Mitchell. So Gary, uh, this is probably your 3,000th year of pre-season testing or something like that, so are you, are you still eagerly anticipating it? Yeah, it's always interesting to see what happens. You know, we've, as you say, we saw the, the cars, the press release cars and stuff, and uh, there's a few of them that had a few 2019 bits and new paint jobs and stuff. So we haven't really seen the true 2020 version yet. I think it'll probably be a couple of days in before we see teams starting to really get the best out of their cars because it's it's always important to start and get some running done and make sure you understand the car and all the systems are working correctly. So that'll take up day one probably. But, you know, as I say, the, the, the team's... They're working against a very tight schedule, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say they're going to come here with their best uh, their best product and for the initial couple of days, because they just want to make sure they get the car up and running and, and get those other things sorted out. But time is of course very tight, isn't it? And and Scott Mitchell, uh, talking of time tight, you're cramming in all sorts of countries. It's four countries in twenty four hours now for you. I'm trying to work it out. Uh, it's been quite an aggressive week or so. Um, I had the I started obviously out in at home in in Sweden headed over to to London briefly before going out to 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 Italy for the Ferrari launch then on to France for the for the Renault launch without a car which was quite weird back to London briefly I was overnight in in Stockholm last night I stayed in an airport hotel and then was jumped on the uh 
my flight to Copenhagen this morning, so then Denmark, and then over here to Barcelona. So it's, it's the worst logistical way to cover launches and then get into pre-season testing. So obviously I'm feeling really refreshed. Yeah, it's a good start for the uh, Scott Mitchell European Tour, but we'll be quite settled in uh, in Spain for the uh, for the coming days. Well, Gary, you sort of touched on what teams will be doing. I mean, what's it like this period? What are we where less we're 14, 15 hours at the time of recording ahead of the, the pit lane opening? What's this time normally like for teams in terms of building cars? Where will be beavering away at the circuit trying to screw everything together and make sure it, it works putting the finishing touches on yeah they'll be beavering away pretty hard tonight just making sure because it's all, it's all new it's the simple things that let you down like you know a little bit of heat shielding on some wiring somewhere near the exhaust system or something like that or a pipe you know all that stuff would be really sort of spending a bit of uh, overtime on it i think quite a few years ago benetton did a bit of a, a survey of how many tie wraps and how many bits of insulation they used and it mounted up to something like five kilograms over the car so you know, you don't want to put any more on than you need because weight's a big penalty. So you just try, try and tidy everything up. But the cars currently will have... We've, we've seen some cars have done a, a bit of a shakedown now, and that'll be the initial thing just because there'll be a lot more sensors on the car just making sure that the oil systems and f- fuel systems and water systems all work as planned. And Usually your first day's spent doing all that sort of stuff, moving around the sensors and making sure that everything's working uh, correctly. And then you sort of start to tidy the car up and take all that stuff off every night because you don't want to lose a day's testing with the car up in the stands if possible. And you don't want to lose an engine or you know do any damage to a gearbox. They're all they're all pretty uh, pretty low numbers at this point in time of the season. So day one will probably be spent just making sure everything works as you think it should work. There will be somebody go out there and you know try to throw in a lap of, of some sort because everybody wants to try, try and get the limelight. Um, and get a few column inches, I suppose you might call it. But normally day one is about reliability stuff, making sure systems work and, and just making sure the car functions the way you think it should. And Scott, we've got a few kind of stragglers, cars we haven't seen properly, plus, of course, some cars we've seen launch versions of or renders of that we'll see uh, see in reality. I guess we could say the Renault and the Racing Point are the ones we haven't properly seen yet. There have been a few... Uh, the odd video snippet and the odd photo of the of the Renault, the racing point that was at the the BWT title sponsorship announcement. Of course, they take over from Sport Pacer as the as the title sponsor. That was yesterday, but that was with a, a year old car. They had the the livery on. That's always always fun to dash down to the pit lane to look at the new cars, isn't it? I'll be out there, um, nice and early. It's also it's pretty warm. Obviously, Barcelona this time of year, so being in the pit lane at eight am, whatever it is, that's uh, that's quite bracing. But the the cars that we haven't seen have all got a little bit about them, I think, because Renault, we saw the sort of teaser images from the from the launch, and had that's what appeared to be quite a quite an interesting shape where the where the nose comes down. And um, Gary, I think you mentioned when you um, when you were looking at the, the Williams, that sort of become that prevailing trend, hasn't it? Williams has, has steered clear of it for reasons really only known to themselves, I suppose. But so you've got Renault there that seems sort of hint at something interesting, and then they've got a big season riding on this car anyway. And we were promised last week at their non-car car launch that they would have a lot changed on the surface this year interested to see if that's actually the case and racing point they're really starting to to to, to talk things up for, for for this year this is a this is a, a team silverstone that hasn't had such uh, enthusiasm and, and and technical uh i guess variety or creativity for for a few years now because of the the, the budget restraints they've been under but they're they're talking really they're getting really quite boisterous about their chances this year and alfa romeo is just interesting because salva was sort of traditionally a team that did quite a lot with 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 not very much but then the financial restraints became too much and we've seen that car in obviously 
shakedown spec with its funny livery and you know nice bit of camouflage effect going on there as well but yet to see the the final version so yeah at least the good thing is i think we've I still expect to see something from each of those cars. You're not just getting to the point where you're just, ah, oh, it's, it's another 2020 car with a different livery. Well, let's get some live reaction from Gary. I don't think you've seen this yet, Gary. That's that's the Renault photo with the nose. I'm just handing my laptop to uh, to Gary Anderson, who's now going to give his measured analysis. The wind tunnel in his head is whirring away. The CFD system that's also in his brain is, is evaluating it. And the conclusion is? Well, I mean, that's a, the first thing it sees the airflow, basically. So... If you imagine the car coming through the airflow, the, you've, the nose has to be where the, where the suspension connects up, the, the nose connects to the chassis. It has to be up at that sort of height because you want the gap underneath the chassis and there's a certain cross-sectional area for the front bulkhead. Then the front of the nose has to be down at that sort of height. So you have to get from A to B. Um, and the best way to do that is just as, as minimal cross-sectional area as possible. Interestingly, and it's a bit like the, uh, a bit less dramatic, I suppose, than the Mercedes, but a bit like the Mercedes, the front of it looks to be where the wing is looks to be a little bit wider than the the top of it where the uh, where the suspension joins and that's to get as much airflow as possible over the top of the nose and in between the front wheels and underneath the chassis so you sort of got this thing you're trying to create that uh, allows the airflow to come off it and go through the front suspension and into the leading edge of the side pod to get as much downforce as possible out of it now it's you know Mercedes sort of started it but it's it's a very expensive thing to do because you know the biggest uh, restriction on it, I suppose, is the crash test. You have to stand two crash tests on the front of the car, and that's not easy. And the smaller you make that cross-sectional area of that uh, that nose, the harder it's going to be. So, you know, I can understand why Williams didn't jump in and try to do it because it can cost you. I would have said Renault would probably spend close to a million dollars to get that nose passed through the crash test. The amount of the amount of crash tests you'd have to have done, the amount of analysis you'd have to have done, it's a hugely expensive thing. So it doesn't happen easily. You could lose a chassis very, very quickly. I think Sauber um, suffered the consequences of that during one of their crash tests. Um, and, you know, it just goes wrong that little bit. And um, and suddenly you destroy a chassis as well. So it's all about aerodynamics. And that's all you can say. Minimum area you can have there um, with the bib underneath it to help the airflow go where you want it to go um, is a good solution. And it will give the car more downforce. But it's, you know, they all it's all small numbers, but they all add up. Good analysis of an expensive nose job there, and now I've got my laptop back, which is uh, which is good. I should say for those who haven't been uh, been listening, we have done podcasts on the eight cars we we'd properly seen at the time. So if you look back in our feed, uh, we've got Gary talking about all eight of those cars and also discussing around some of the big topics of the team. So if you delve back into into our archive, you can find more there. Now, an interesting thing this year, we're down to six days testing from from eight. So there has been this, ever, ever since we have the, the in-season testing ban, which is actually 2009, then 2010 we kind of had fully homogenised pre-season testing, which was about over 16 days. It went down to 12 in 2012, down to eight in 2016, and now down to six days of, of testing. So three days for each driver, basically, plus you can do the 100 kilometres on a promotional day with the, the demo tyres, etc., that's not a lot, is it? Or do, do you think this is a, a good thing, Scott, that it's all being being crammed into? So some of the drivers have, have complained a bit. I think it's... I'm a bit mixed on it. I, th- I feel like the may, maybe we'll have the... Fo- this year's a bad ex- a bad example of it, I think. It, when you have a regulation change or something where there's not this much stability, I think the impact of losing those days will be felt more because how many times have we seen in recent years someone have a setback of some kind and if you've got eight days or in the past like 12 days or whatever it was, you lose a day and people thought it was the end of the world. Now, if you lose a day, 
you just literally won sixth of your running straight away. Um, it's still painful, but maybe this year is yeah a bad example because uh, apart from a few a few changes, it's 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 largely the same. If you have six days next year, twenty twenty one, big rule changes and. You're trying to work out whether your concept's the right one or, or you maybe on the engine side, okay, the rules are pretty much the same. But if you change something within the concept there, it's going to punish you a bit harder. I, I quite like it because I feel like the less prepared teams are, the more chance of variability we're going to have and therefore maybe a few surprises early on. Um, but F1 teams are so good now. They're so polished. I don't know. Some of the teams have said that it's going to be a there seems to be a mix among the teams as well. Some are saying that they're going to feel the impact and that it's going to make things more pressured. And others are just saying, well, we, we tend to just adapt because you have to adapt in, in Formula 1 to change in circumstances, especially when the season is getting ever more aggressive. There has to be some give somewhere. But we do also know that we'll get to the track tomorrow and teams are going to be doing three-figure number of laps, aren't they, Gary? They are, yeah. But, you know, it all comes from basically, you know, the size of your budget. Because I think by limiting testing, you really play into the big guys' hands because the simulation tools that they have now are second to none. I mean, Mercedes, Red Bull, Ferrari, they're testing now. They'll be testing in their simulators now for what setup they're going to run tomorrow, for for different setups with high fuel loads, low fuel loads. You know, they they will be running now. They'll probably have two drivers each lined up there. One gets a little bit tired, the other one will be plugged into there. And we should say it's not just... The driver in loop simulator is one of them, but there's all sorts of other simulators and dynamic rigs, and so simulation means a whole a whole range of things that test every part of the car, including physical car components and cars that they're effectively being properly properly run. Yeah, no, every part of the car is put now in a rig. It's, it's endurance tested. It's you know tested the destruction. You know to make sure you know, the reliability of these cars is fantastic. There'll be um, Honda dynos running with gearboxes on it. They'll be optimizing the gear chains. The you know the 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 power feed in from the uh, electronic for the electrical side of it. All that stuff is going on right now. So uh, what I'm saying is, it's, it's it's this limit of actual circuit testing. A is not good for for the public to see racing cars, which is what it's all about. And B, it's it starts at the front of the the, the grid and goes to the smallest teams at the back. And you know the the big teams have more more equipment, more expensive equipment, and more people to make to make it work for themselves. So. Everything that's done now to limit running a racing car around the track is playing into the big team's hands. And I guess in terms of the way things have changed, the preparation you do on a Denoma car and M26 before testing with, with James Hunt or whoever, was, uh, I guess you just give it a bit of a kick and uh, see if it see if it shakes apart. Yeah, I mean, that's all you could do because you, you didn't know really anything else. Of, of course, you, you, know, you tried, you had something that you could run the shock absorbers on or you could stress up some of the suspension components and just see how it, how it went. But it was very rudimentary. Um, but still, at the end of the day, you know, it was the same, more or less the same for everybody then. So it wasn't too bad. But now, I think it, it, the same for everybody is completely different. It's not like that at all. Because, the, as I say, the budgets have just got so big and the, the, the big teams put so much into their simulation tools. And it's, it's not only just the simulation tools. It's the amount of aero data you can put into those simulators to, to really make the car... As close to possible as possible to correlating, uh, you know, on the track, and that's where the sort of finesse comes into it. Also, although we've only got six running days, um, and that will be spent by a lot of the teams just making sure the car works the way that the simulator says it should work. In other words, you know, the car's characteristics need to match the simulator. Um, if you get that, then 
the, the teams that have got the good tools will say, well, we don't care about our lap time because we know whenever we develop our car, we put these bits into the simulator to see if they're quicker or slower. And if they're quicker, when we put it on the car on the track, it will go faster. So they've got confidence in it. And that's the difficult part. And you can see them, you know, going down through the grid, the teams that don't have that confidence, they'll come and they will put a part on the car and they'll go around the lap and just, just see what it does do. So, um, yeah, I would rather have cars going around the track rather than ban a lot of the simulation stuff. But you can't, you can't. It's just technology. That's all it is. It is interesting to look at the, the trends. I had a, a bit of a look at the, the mileage that was done in testing over that uh, period back to 2010. And looking at the top six teams in 2010, over 16 days, the top six teams in terms of mileage, I did that just because there's always somebody who has a problem like Williams last year and don't want, don't want outliers to distort the curve. So in 2010, across 16 days, the combined total of the top six teams was 23,589 miles. Last year, across eight days, the top six teams managed just a couple of miles short of 17,000 miles cumulatively. So that's not, you know, the 50% cut in time hasn't added up over time to a 50% reduction in the in the amount of, time, of mileage they're doing. So the efficiencies in, increased a lot in terms of the way they, they operate. We will see a little bit less total mileage than last year because the number of tyre sets they've got available, basically it equates to you've got 10 sets a day uh, for each test day. It was the same last year, so six days means you're basically 30 sets a test and you can carry over five of those sets from one to test one to test two, according to Pirelli, whereas last year you could carry over 10 if you wanted to. So the tyre resource is actually almost more pressing than, than the, the total time resource and in fact some teams have found on days where they've done marathon running they've basically got no tires left at the end of the day so all they can do is roll around do some pit stop practice they can't do any any sensible running because they've they've chewed up all their rubber yeah i mean tires are critically important obviously it's the, the poor black bits of rubber that connect the car to the ground so it doesn't matter about what you've got as far as aero or mechanical trick stuff on the car you know if you can't put the load through those tires and if the tires have given up then it's a waste of time running so 10 sets of tires a day though per team is it's it's pretty decent you know i think at the end of the day that's you know well one and a half sets one and a half sets per hour or something like that so i you know that's not too bad uh, they have to there has to be a line drawn somewhere to be honest and you know the teams themselves push for these tires for this year to be the same as last year pirelli were going to introduce a new tire for this year but the teams rejected it um so they probably shot themselves in the foot because if they had brought that new tire in pirelli would probably have been giving them 20 sets a day or something because they needed to get the the mileage on them and the understanding but what Pirelli are probably saying is just, well, same tyres last year, so you know all about that. You don't have to go out there and discover the tyre. You just have to go out and discover your car. Well, we'll take a very brief break, and we'll be back after this with some more testing chat. Well, welcome back. We are, of course, previewing pre-season testing. Scott, are there any cars you're particularly excited about getting up close and personal with tomorrow? Well, that sounds a bit weird, doesn't it, Ed? Um, I am kind of keen to see... Uh, exactly what comes out of the the Merck Ferrari Red Bull battle because I know we've obviously had a decent look at the the Mercedes and the the Red Bull. I'm always I'm always so impressed by these these teams that it's almost without fail now they're out doing a shakedown a week before testing starts. And as Renault boss Cyril Abitable now quite infamously said a, a week ago, it's impossible to get a car ready in time before pre-season testing. It's still so it's just a fake car if you're if you're launching it. I've got to say, when was the Jordan 191 right? You ran that in about November, didn't you, the year before? Yeah, Sorry, I should say 911 as it originally was. Uh, 911, yeah. 911 ran in November. Um, the 191, uh, sort of its first run, run out was the beginning of January, but, you know, different days way back then. Um, and we weren't racing. We are doing Formula 3000 and the build-up to, to the Formula 1 car, so we weren't racing and designing the car. We learned all that stuff the next year, actually, how hard it is to 
to have a small team and actually design a new car and get it out. So I, I sort of agree with Cyril, but you know, you've got to, you've got to understand that it's planning that gets the car out there. I drove past the Red Bull factory because I've been traveling a bit lately. I drove past the Red Bull factory on a Saturday afternoon about two weeks before they ran their car. I drove past the next weekend as well, and there wasn't a car in the car park. So uh, those days have changed. I mean, we were there burning the midnight oil many, many times, but uh, it didn't seem to be that Red Bull needed to do that. So they're either, they've either got their car together very early and it's out of date, or they have been very organised and got themselves to where they want to be. And that, I think and I hope it's the latter. Well, they've traditionally been, I think, quite easy for them to, to fall behind over winter. But Helmut Marko was saying, I think, as early as sort of mid-late December that, they, they, they. I think they were clawing back literally days compared to what their original schedule was. They, they were, they were well ahead of, uh, well ahead of time. And this, so this is what's interesting for me because Red Bull and Mercedes, we've seen those those cars on track. So I'm curious to see exactly how much of a baseline that, that was. We already know that Mercedes has made it clear they're not going to repeat the trick of last year and have an all new car for for, for week two. But Ferrari is the outlier because. Ferrari's already it's already that differential with its front wing concept compared to the other two but we haven't even seen the definitive 2020 front wing from the Ferrari because when they had their car and you know they talked up all of the packaging at the rear and you you could say okay yeah this is sleeker and meaner and much nicer to look at from that perspective but that front wing as Matip and Otto said it is a 2019 wing so I'm I want to see I'd just be curious to see if there's any kind of shift towards a compromise or any or anything like that because and I think we've we've talked about this on another podcast before I just I do sometimes struggle to get my head around the idea of we're going to stick to our concept from last year but we're just going to have a load more downforce on on the car so I just want to see exactly how they've realized that and then I want to see just how many extra bolt-on components Mercedes and Red Bull come up with over the next two days because that top three that we're not we're not going to have Renault or Racing Point or McLaren bridge the gap. It's going to be the same hope as we've had for however many seasons now that we'll at least get a proper battle between these big three teams. And I and I said this I think in in January when when we launched the site, um, it will for me it will sting a lot more if we don't get a title fight this year. There's it, it's been long enough now. And we've had all of the excuses. And Red Bull have got their new engine partner, and Ferrari have got their new management, and the talking needs to stop it actually needs to happen and there's so much expectation and hope going into this season more than I can remember for for quite a while so it's going to really really hurt if Lewis and Valtteri go out and win the first eight races again now Gary people always want to try and see what they can learn from the first day of testing so what can be learned and for those who will be keeping an eye on it from afar what what are you going to be looking out for what should people be be looking for for, for little clues on on day one um, first of all, I'd sort of like to see the cars in detail. Scott says, you know, what we've seen now, we have no idea really if that's going to be the 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 uh, final car or the final car for this test even. So it's about looking at the cars and seeing them in the pit lane and all the little detail and seeing, you know, the amount of stuff that these cars have on around the barge boards and stuff like that is incredible. So you want to see if the bits are all there. You know, they have to optimise all those bits, but you just want to see the complexity they've gone into to design the car. And then out in the track, it's just good to, here's very good to watch through turn one, two, and three. Um, there's lots of good cords around here, to be honest, just to see what the, you know, the stance of the car's like, if the confidence on braking and turning in at turn one is critically important, and see how consistent it is. You can you can normally pick up quite good stuff, even if the lap time itself is not, you know, the most special. If the consistency is there, um, then, you know, it, 
that that gives you a base to work from. Last year, whenever we were watching the cars out there, you could see um, in the early stages that you know the, the Mercedes wasn't as good as the Ferrari, but Mercedes worked really hard. I mean, the eight days of test and the stuff they brought in the second test, the stuff they took to Australia, as they they themselves said, you know, it was now on a new car, um, and they had to work really hard to to catch up the gap. But um, but they did it, and they did it solidly, and you know. Ferrari fell away as well, so the the, the deficit in uh, in Australia looked huge, but then you know by the next race it was caught back up again. So that's the way it is. You need you need to make sure that you can react to a situation because you're only as good as the other guys. You know, we just said, Scott just said there that you know McLaren or or Renault or um, Racing Point you know won't join those big three if they got it lucky, luckily right, because that's all it is really. To be honest, you know I've seen times whenever we've designed a car, and really and truthfully. You know, you sort of thought mm, this hasn't hasn't really achieved the goals that we set out, but yet on the track the driver loved it because there's just a characteristic in there that if you give the driver good feeling, good confidence, he will give you more than than lots and lots of extra downforce. If that downforce is really peaky and horrible, then you can't get the car into that little window. So going out in the track, having a look at them, just seeing how consistent the balance of that the car can be and how many laps they do in one run, that sort of stuff can can give you an indication as to whether the base of the car is good um, and ready to be. You know, one day just fuel taken out of it and somebody go for a lap time. And then following on from that, I always like it on the last sort of day or two when you when you really start to see the, the, the proper teams go out and do their, their race simulation runs. It's always quite fun trying to sort of second guess who's actually properly starting one. Because obviously after a few days, even when it's testing and the times are relatively meaningless, you do start to get an idea for, right, what, this one is, this is clearly four seconds a lap slower we know that they can be much quicker than this and then you start to say okay well they're the red bull have got the um they seem to have everybody there they're doing they've got the pit wall gantry up everyone's everyone's up there and they've got the the the, the pit crew are, are ready and they've come in they've done a proper live pit stop so i think this might be the start of a of a proper race run so you then slowly start to chart it and that the reason i like that is because once you get to and sometimes i think we've had this fair few times haven't we Ed, where you try and do the long run analysis but a red flag has punctuated one of the stints or something and it's very very rare that you will have an authentic race run without problems from each of the big teams so you are always it's testing there are always so many caveats but it's just that's i i, I like the low fuel runs but you never know when someone's going absolutely all out for glory i just like that first little hint of what something competitive might be but you get to the end and you just think there was only about 10 seconds between those total race runs and you just and you can't help but get carried away we say this every single year that you shouldn't read in too much into this or that or or the other and you still find yourself trying to draw conclusions because it's f1 testing and i feel like if you're a massive football fan and you got let into uh, if you're at uh, Man United, you get let into like the first day of preseason training and see all the new signings and stuff and that sort of thing. That would be that would be brilliant for for a, a football fan, and we we actually get that in F1. We do get indications even in football in preseason friendlies, but they're not always precise. And the way I always think of it is, there are things to learn in preseason testing. You just can't learn everything. I always think of it. You've got kind of a always in head. You kind of have a, a model of what's going on in the season of the relative performance of everyone, and that does evolve as the season progresses. But it's like on day one testing, you've got it, and the error bars are massive. And by the time you get to the end of testing, you've got a, a picture that seems consistent, and the error bars are still significant, but they're a bit narrower than they were. Then you get to Australia, and the error bars are a little bit narrowed again. And then once you get to the end of the season, you've kind of got your whole sample set of data, and then you've got the definitive. Well, that's actually what's ha- what's happened. So 
I always think it is worth looking at what's going on in testing, but we always say there's always many caveats to what to the conclusions that are being drawn. And I think it's it's a worthwhile exercise to to see how things are how things are done, how things are read, what actually makes sense from from the numbers to create that model, and then if things deviate from it, like Australia last year, Mercedes went to Australia thinking they'd be behind but stronger than people thought they were. Ferrari thought they'd be ahead. All the other teams thought that. We all thought that, and there were good reasons for that. And then of course things changed. Ferrari did struggle in Australia, but Mercedes had made good progress the last day and a half or so of testing and then data crunching they just absolutely nailed it in the early stages of the season but you only get you only appreciate the job that mercedes has done by actually accepting where things are in testing which is why the stuff when people say people are it was sandbagging and something it wasn't everyone was doing their own program and mercedes absolutely aced it and to appreciate that you've got to see what happened and be kind of there as it goes on to understand how that model's evolving and how much of it is down to inaccuracy how much of it's down to things changing which is what's brilliant about this period of the year yeah i mean you, you've got to look a bit back a bit as well like the cars this year are the same as last year's in reality if we look at last year's testing um and then we compare those times to the spanish grand prix time you know the fastest times weren't much different um so you you get a trend as to who was who's improved and who hasn't spanish grand prix was what the fifth race of the season so there wasn't that much development went on um, so you can compare that and see, well, we, we think these guys were running fuel last year, these guys weren't. I mean, if you take Williams as an example, um, they end up the season just over 4% slower than Mercedes over you know the 20 races. Um, and um, yet testing here last, last year, whenever they only got one of the week's testing, really, they were only just 2.5% slower than Mercedes. So, you know, obviously... There's things happen that we you just can't account for. I think I don't know what happened to to Williams really because you know I think it shocked them whenever they got to the first race as well. You know there was things on the car that were, were controversial. I think you might call it during testing, and they had to change it. But I can't believe that the little things they had was worthy of almost two percent performance, which is huge. I mean that's two seconds in a hundred hundred second lap time. Yeah, and th- and there's also other things as well like Hassel looked really good in preseason testing last year, and they were good. They were then very good in Australia. They were good in qualifying in Bahrain as they often were through the through the year, and then plummeted in the race. and And that was a a temperature thing because they they struggled with the car in what might be termed normal temperatures, and they struggled massively in warm temperatures. So here, great Melbourne, where it wasn't warm last year, great. So there is there was no way from pre season testing to to say that the Haas was actually going to have a terrible season. However, to understand why the car had a terrible season, you've got to register the fact that actually it looked very strong and legitimately so in testing because it was working in cooler conditions. Then, but it just turns out rear downforce was stalling. They were working the tyres much much harder when it was so. All these problems, you need that context to understand, which is what makes uh, pre-season testing worthwhile. Now, on the subject of things that are worthwhile, it's a moot point whether this is. But I'm I'm again letting Scott Mitchell have a, an episode of Scott's People. We haven't had one for a while. What stupid question have you got for us now? And I just like to say. This is Scott's bit. I, I let him take responsibility for what's about to happen. Well, you see, you, you're you always so negative about it, but I, I like it. It's just a good bit of fun. Negative but tolerant of it. Yeah, no, that, you're nothing if not tolerant. Um, no, this one was just a slightly... Uh, I, f- I think it was actually the... Um, I believe it was the podcast where we, we introduced you on, on, on the race, Gary, and uh, at the end of that, asked people to just sort of submit three people that they'd have round, three F1 people they'd have round. They're sort of the classic dream dinner dinner party uh invite list and for this one it was uh, an f1 theme so three f f1 people and unsurprisingly i i i had a feeling that james hunt would appear on 
the majority of lists. We have someone who will who has had dinner with James Hunt relatively exactly. regularly in, Actually, in Gary, so this, he, the, he can offer some the, uh, this insight. Is why it's per- this is why it's worked out perfectly, because there's a few here. I actually just think, I'm basically just going to say, Gary, what do you think of these three people in the same room together? The first one, Mark Stanley, for example, his his trio is Eddie Jordan, James Hunt and Daniel Ricciardo. Yeah, that'll be a good bunch, I must admit, you know... Um, Eddie's a bit of a character, got a few stories there. And Daniel Ricardo likes a bit of a laugh. James James was would be the, the life and soul of the party though. He was he was a good guy. I mean he he did enjoy life at that point in time. He was a very good racing driver, but he he just he did really enjoy life. And and on that subject, um Richie said uh Nelson PK, I presume he means senior. Um, Nelson PK, James Hunt and Kimi Raikkonen, quote, for the pure carnage that would ensue. Yeah. I mean, they're different eras, so I think you have to watch that a little bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, there would be a bit of carnage around. I, I, I think if you take any of those guys and put them into a room together, there will be carnage. I mean, James Hunt came to my first housewarming party we had. and I Did the house him. survive? Did you need <laughs> it, another it, house it after nearly, that? It nearly didn't. Um, but he, um, yeah, he came. We were expecting sort of 20, 30 people to come because, you know, it was a small team, McLaren, but there was over 100 came, and James arrived in the limo out the front and we lived in a cul-de-sac in Bagshot in Surrey and um, halfway through the night one of the people who lived in the cul-de-sac with me was a policeman and he came up and said look you know there's no way a fire engine could get in here or anything if it was a you know a safety thing so um, he said you need to move all the cars from the, the corners so that, that you know we can get a truck in if not or a fire engine in or an ambulance or something if someone does happen to to somebody's house so James organised the, the car manoeuvres and it was he, he was outside like a, you know, like a policeman Right, it's your car now. You go that way in. You go that way in. It was really very, very good. But we had a great time. Him and Patrick Tamby both came and sat on the stairs and drank a lot. <laughs> we can give you... Um, I think we can try and find out what Rory Mitchell's address is so that you can go around his house and have a word with him for this, Gary. Because on the topic of... Because he'd want the topic of the evening to be how to make the fastest race car ever. He wants to combine the technical minds of Ross Braun, Adrian Newey and John Barnard. And you're not on the list. But is that trio... If you're not going to be on a list of a dinner party because those three are ahead of you, is that acceptable? Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, you got to cut your cloth as you as you are. Um, they were very three very good, very good guys. Um, you know, Patrick Head. I don't think Patrick was mentioned there, was he? He'd be another guy I'd sort of have. You'd, you'd try and put a table together with them, but I don't think it's CITI and how it all happens. I think it's a very, very different. Uh, creative minds there but it's uh, it's obviously something that would be very interesting to see if you did give them a, a scrap of paper and uh and say here have a bit of a sketch what's your ultimate and see what will come out the other end of it we can but, put we, we can put gary on standby for that if any of those decline yeah absolutely um i'm gonna throw this one to you ed because i want to see what you think of this uh john t's corner suggested uh lewis hamilton ron dennis and max mosley get the ply them with wine and then just drop in 20 2007 that was a weird year wasn't it <laughs> It would be interesting, certainly. I, I would swap Alonso for Hamilton, though. I'd have I'd have Alonso yeah. there. I, I think he'd. I think that would be a bit more interesting. They're all very interesting characters. How well they'd bounce off each other is a is another question. But they've, uh, like so many people who succeed in Formula One, they'll, they'll have something interesting to say. So yeah, potentially combustible combination. I'll pick. I'll, I'll I'll do one more that I got. This is comfortably the one where people got most excited by because it was it's, quite, it's just quite a neat, nice, easy, fun one to do. Um, but this one was uh, this one was surprisingly good. I have actually got an extra one that I will read out in a second because it's from an old question I asked, but it involves you again, Gary. So I need to I need to mention it. The, and Elliot Wood, Ed, I think you'll like this. Um, 
suggested a trio of uh, Jano Trulli to provide wine, Roman Grosjean to cook with, and Mauricio Gugelman to chat to. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Well, there we go. Yeah, I'm sure Mauricio Gugelman would have some uh, good stuff. A former Jordan driver. Yeah, Maurizio, was a, he, was a, he was a good guy, actually. He came and he, he was the one that actually brought us the Sassel sponsorship initially at, at, at Jordan. So, a nice guy. He was, I think he was, he was quick in his day. Um, I worked with him a bit in the States as well in IndyCars. So, uh, yeah, I, w- I would have him around for dinner. I think if we trade, if we put you in for Roman, then Maurizio, you can chat while Jano truly brings... Lots of wine from, from his vineyard. Yeah. From his vineyard. Well, well, if he brought enough wine, we wouldn't have to cook, which was what Grosjean was coming for. So exactly, we that's don't we don't need him to cook. That's a very good. We should say Roman Grosjean, of course, cookbook author. Yeah, yeah have a hydraulic hydraulic dinner. Get <laughs> <laughs> full, fully liquid. Um, so I'm basically because obviously we're into testing now, so this is uh, it's going to be quite hectic, and I've got so much so many here that I need to go through lots more. So I'm perfectly happy for people to just throw us on Twitter more. Uh, examples of these and also the old the very the original f1 people in random places suggestion request which i get one or two of these every week and i got one this week gary and i don't know you might may, may not remember this but a chap who has sent a photo he took of the two of you where he bumped into you i'm guessing on holiday Yes, I do remember it, actually, yeah. Um, I'm going back there this year. Um, yeah, I can't remember the name. That's a, a very nice little bar behind that behind them there. That's why we're both there, I think, to be honest. But yeah, how are you doing? Are you all right? So basically, we just we just send people out to Antigua to just camp out for you. And yes. then you can just do meet and greets. Well, luckily, I was, I'm going to Antigua when the Chinese Grand Prix was supposed to be on. So luckily, they cancelled it. It'll make it a bit easier for me. So that, that, one was from, uh, that one's from Alex Cordoner. So I appreciate that one coming in. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? That's absolutely perfect. Excellent. And there you go. Another episode of Scott's People done and dusted it. Well, it's we got, not that difficult. We, is it? we got through it. We got through it. And I should say, I'm hoping that uh, because I will be having dinner with three F1 people, Gary Anderson, Scott Mitchell, and our, our video ace, Luke Hinsel, tonight. So there we go. I can't imagine that was anybody's uh, dream threesome, so to speak. <laughs> but I can definitely think Gary will be advocating a, what was it you call it, a hydraulic dinner. A little bit of a hydraulic dinner. It just gets the dust out of the throat, you know. <laughs> we've, we've been working on Gary's wine budget as well already, so hopefully we'll be able to uh, hit that. Well, testing, of course, as we've been discussing, is upon us. We'll all be out here. We'll also have Mark Hughes out here covering testing. So head to therace.com, the-race.com for all the written coverage there. We'll be doing daily podcasts. There'll be regular videos on our YouTube channels. Just search for The Race uh, there. We've got all sorts of videos on uh, analysing the, the new cars as well there. So there's going to be huge amounts of coverage over the coming days. So do subscribe. Give us a, a review if you if you feel like it, even a positive one if you like. And join us tomorrow for more F1 testing chat.